Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're very glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Today we're going to consider for our text the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, and the first 14 verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this is written as part of the letter we call Hebrews. It's an anonymous letter to an audience that is not explicitly specified. A lot of different uh, theses, theses exist about who wrote it, uh, Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, or perhaps others. But the letter is called Hebrews because the content indicates that it's written to Jewish Christians. And he's trying to encourage them to persevere in the faith, which has been a major theme in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39, that... that it's the final conclusion in that passage of what he's been talking about throughout the letter, that Jesus appeared to the angels in the first two chapters, that Jesus is greater than Moses, and that the Christian hope is greater than the hope given to Israel in chapter 3 and most of 4. Then the great middle section, where Jesus is a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, according to Psalms 110. That means he's king and priest, that he inaugurates a new covenant in his blood, and he provides full atonement in a way that the Levitical system just could never do, from Hebrews 4.14 through chapter 10 and verse 18. And then, of course, as we said, in verses 19 through 39, he directly applies all this to say that they need to persevere. They need to strengthen what is weak. When we look at our chapter, chapter 12, it begins with a therefore. Therefore always tends to uh, be a conclusion to what has come beforehand. What's come beforehand in chapter 11 is the Hebrew author has established the importance of faith, that it is the assurance of things hoped for, the Conviction of things not seen, that by it the people will receive commendation. And in verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And he continues by demonstrating 
the faith manifest by the heroes of old in the creation in Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites of the conquest, the judges, and he says many others. But despite their greatness, he says in verse 39 and 40, they did not receive what was promised, that God has provided something better for Christians, and apart from them, those heroes of faith, as great as they are, cannot be made perfect. That's a great source of encouragement for the Christian, and that's why the Hebrew author continues on that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses are to encourage us in this in this race. And it's very, it is a very encouraging thought to think that all those uh, great men of old and many people in history are, are, are kind of in the stands, encouraging us, strong, strengthening us to go on, that they would take note of us and do such things, uh, something that uh, can really warm the heart in, in difficult times. And to do this running that we're supposed to do, we're to lay aside every weight. What is this weight? Well, it'd be easy to say, well, the weight is sin, but he says weight and sin. So the weight is not sin. In fact, the weight represents any kind of burden uh, that is a distraction from Christianity. And we can point out Matthew 6, Jesus warned about concerns about food, drink, clothing, and other basic necessities. In Colossians chapter 2 and 1 John 2, these worldly things that perish, and these other things that we can imagine in entertainment or other such things that would fit in these categories are not supposed to distract us in our walk with Christ. And we look at the heroes of faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses, did they allow distractions to hinder them? And sometimes they did, and when they did, uh, we see that it cost them greatly, and they wanted to return back to focusing on God. They were set toward a kingdom that could not be shaken. So we should be thankful for that hope of the promise that's been fulfilled for us in Jesus, and to devote ourselves fully and soberly to that end. So there's the weight, but there is also the sin that clings so closely. That clings so closely is a Greek word, eupherisatos. It's actually the only time the word is used in the New Testament. It refers kind of to the idea that somebody is standing around you well or surrounding you. Uh, either a competitor, uh, imagine for instance in football, uh, you got if you're on the offensive line, the defender who's lined up well to, to, to get you or, or vice versa. And so that metaphor for sin is appropriate. That it, it, it clings to us, it it stands around, surrounds us, it's, it's competing against us, it's hindering us from accomplishing what God would have us to do. Uh, sin itself cannot stand before Jesus. Jesus has gained the victory over it, but it can certainly hinder us from obtaining the prize, from running that race, and keeping us from being able to, to run it effectively. That is why in 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, Peter says we need to die to sin so that we can live to righteousness. And that's the only way we can do it, is if we no longer allow that uh, opponent to hinder us. So, we are to lay aside the weight and the sin that clings to do what? To run the race that is set before us with endurance. A similar metaphor is, is used in Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Uh, we're to run the race so as to win it. Uh, not for a perishable crown, but for an imperishable one. And to run with the aim, lest we be disqualified. Um, what's important to note there is these these races, these run races are the kind of races you can imagine we still have today at the Olympics. These you know, 500 meter dashes, or 
something perhaps even like a marathon where you have competitive running that requires pacing, that requires endurance so that you can run to the end. It requires discipline so that you can run that race so that you can make it. And of course, there is an actual specified path that is to be run. Um, the race is set before us. We don't get to invent the way we run as we run it. Uh, we're called to find the path and to travel it. And in doing that, we're supposed to, look in verse 2, look to Jesus, founder and perfecter of our faith. And the important thing to realize is Jesus has run this race. Uh, Jesus has already done this. Hebrews 4, 15 and 5, 8, 9. That he uh, can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in all points, yet, like we are yet without sin. And he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. He's our chief example. We are to imitate uh, Christ and to walk as he walked in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 and 1 John 2 and verse 6. He is the express character of God in the flesh, and so we can see exactly what we're supposed to do if we follow him, Hebrews 1 and verse 3. That's why these two terms used about Jesus, the founder and perfecter, in Greek, uh, archegos and teleotes, from words from archos and teleos, uh, origin and completion. And so the Hebrews author is telling us that uh, our faith is originated in and completed in Jesus. And so we need to be uh, in Jesus to have this faith. And we have to maintain that faith and realize that it's been established for us. We can't make it up as we go along. Uh, it has already been established. That path has been trod by Jesus. And that he will see us through. That on our own, we would uh, fail as we had failed before. But he is able to strengthen and sustain us and to guide us through in his power and through his wisdom. And the faith is able to be followed. And of course, uh, he will continue to show exactly what that faith is. Uh, who for the joy that is set before him... Uh, endured the cross, despising the shame, and to see at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the race that we're running? Well, it's that race to uh, endure suffering, to despise shame, and to do it with joy, because we know what's set before us. We think many times about Jesus' own sufferings in the Garden of Gethsemane, and how he greatly was in anguish because he knew what was coming. We focus on that, which is right and good, because it was something he was focusing on. But how did he get through it? How did he endure that terrible time? Well, he endured it because he knew what was coming. He was doing the Father's will, and he knew that exaltation awaited him. He knew God was going to raise him from the dead in Matthew 16, 21, other places. And so he knew that the suffering was only going to be for a short time, and that the reward for his suffering was going to be far greater than the suffering that he was going to endure. And that's the point that Paul has about us as well in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, that uh, this, we're just see our, our current difficulties as very slight and temporary in light of the eternal weight of glory which he desires to give us. It's hard to kind of look at how shameful the cross is. The cross is a curse in Galatians 3.13. That Jesus absorbed the shame and reproach so that we can be redeemed and saved, according to 1 Peter 2, 21-24. And we're going to have to despise the shame, and we're going to have to absorb the suffering if we are going to obtain that same result. Uh, Jesus could not get to uh, Zion saved through Calvary, and uh, he did not create a bypass for his followers. And so that's what the Hebrew author is kind of making clear here. There is going to be some kind of difficulty and suffering. And it's kind of something throughout the note in Hebrews 12. It's kind of behind the scenes that there's discipline if there's not persecution. And, and therefore, we, we've got to be ready for these things. 
But above all things, he brother wants us to know, we can run this race if we look to Jesus. Jesus has done it. We have every confidence that we can do it in him. And so he brother continues to meditate on this theme. To consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. It gets tiring. The constant barrage can get tiring. And it seems throughout that the Hebrew author is writing to Christians who've been Christians for a while. And so he's writing to Christians in a particular season. And that season might be something like autumn or winter, where not necessarily in a literal concrete sense, but the autumn and winter of faith, where they're they're fading. They're, they're, they're tired. It's getting cold, so to speak. And so he says, remember what Jesus endured. Remember what Jesus endured. And look, it's easy to get discouraged when we uh, go through it and endure such things. And we sometimes are spoken evil of, maybe we're criticized for being Christian. But that, that's what Jesus said. If uh, the master is called the ma- uh, Beelzebub, what's going to happen to those who are in his house? And there's always hostility to Jesus. And so, you know, honestly, most of us have not endured the type of hostility even Jesus endured. And that's what the Hebrew author is even pointing out to those to whom he's writing in verse 4, that they have uh, not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And this is, again, spoken to the uh, brethren here at this time, uh, probably in the 60s. Uh, the uh, Persecutions may not have reached them yet. Maybe uh, later on they were persecuted, maybe beforehand. Uh, maybe some other of them have been persecuted, but none of them had shed their blood yet for the Lord Jesus. Is it necessarily a bad thing? Well, he just says that's the way it is. You have not yet gotten there yet. You've not done what Jesus did yet. It just is a statement of fact. And uh, it's probably true of most of us as well. We have not yet resisted the point of bloodshed. And, of course, the question that is good to ask is, if it got to that point, would we be willing to do so? Would we prove to be good soil that stands firm for the gospel? Or we'd be the rocky soil where when that persecution comes that we uh, fall away? Matthew 13, 3 through 9, explained in 19 through 23. So from that, he's kind of turning here looking in verses 5 and 6 as an exhortation as given to sons. Now, in the English standard, it's spoken of as a question. Uh, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Uh, you could also just read it as a declarative statement. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as son. So uh, the difference there is whether or not they actually have versus just kind of this rhetorical effect to get them to think about it. Uh, but the point is the same, that they need to consider this exhortation because it certainly seems like they've forgotten. And it comes from Proverbs three eleven and 12, that uh, the discipline of God uh, is not to be regarded lightly, but to be accepted because he loves those whom he disciplines and chastises the son he receives. And we could go on and explain this, but the Hebrew author himself does that in verses 7 through 8. Um, it's for discipline that we endure, something that we also see in Romans 5 and James chapter 1. That the discipline that we receive helps us to grow in our walk with Christ. This is something we see in terms of persecution. That Actually, persecution, something that we often resist, and understandably so, has actually led to great profit to the faith of Unity, fervency, and spirit, and love prevail among brethren when there is persecution. Um, Tertullian famously said, the blood of martyrs is seed. It uh, it shows that the cause of Christ is, is worth dying for, so it's worth living for, and it makes it immensely more attractive to people. Uh, when the church gets complacent, when the church does not have such external enemies pressing hard upon it, uh, 
that's when uh, churches will divide and, and turn on themselves and problems uh, become much more manifest. But it's also just a recognition in life about discipline, that uh, discipline really demonstrates our adoption as sons that we're not illegitimate. In fact, we should be more bothered if we're not being disciplined because it means that we are as illegitimate. Uh, understanding in context that um, a lot of men, especially of means, would have children with their wives, but also would have concubines or slaves or other people with whom he would have children. Those children were considered illegitimate. They would not receive the inheritance. Uh, the father would invest most in the child who would obtain his household and to make sure he grew up to be um, a respectable citizen to honor the name of the family. Other children, whatever. And he was more indifferent to them and maybe perhaps even more indulgent to them. And so you could see somebody's standing based on their raising. And so in terms of this metaphor, it means that uh, if we're illegitimate sons, we're not going to receive the inheritance, we're kind of kept out. So if we're not getting that kind of discipline, if we're not going through that kind of trial, we're not growing, it means that we may not be in the faith. We might not be in Christ, and that, that would be something that's dangerous indeed. And so we do well to consider this here. That we're not to really grumble when we're disciplined, because it demonstrates that God does love us. And he carries on with this theme in verses 9 through 11, comparing the discipline of God with discipline we've received from earthly fathers. He says, earthly fathers will discipline, and we respected them, first of all, and that they did so uh, with an end that we would uh, get better. Um, but God is all-powerful and all-knowing and our creator. So when he disciplines us, it is ultimately for our good. That's a premise of faith, that uh, God's discipline is for our good. We have to trust in God's goodness toward us to, to be willing to accept that fact. And Rath here is not a, a, a pie in the sky. He knows it's not pleasant. It's not fun. But... The good fruit of righteousness comes from it. And, and so if we really want to get that peace and righteousness uh, that comes from following God, we're going to have to go through these trials. It's not going to be fun. But just like when we were growing up, it didn't was not fun to be told to stop all the time or do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And then we recognize in the end, and when our parents do such things, it's it's so that we understand boundaries, so that we understand healthy behaviors, so we stay away from unhealthy behaviors. And um, we might quibble at times, motivations. We might think sometimes it might have been more harsh than it should have been. But in general, you think uh, our parents did this because they cared. And it was for our good. It may not seem great at the moment, but it definitely is good. And so can we recognize that as adults? That even though we may now be adults and have our own children, perhaps, that we are still the children of the Heavenly Father and therefore at times need discipline. We might be in advanced age and have grandchildren, great-grandchildren, but yet still require the discipline that God gives to his sons. And let's be honest, can we even be good and holy and righteous if we do not have discipline and if we are not disciplined? And so that's why we need to accept the chasing of our Lord, even when it's less than pleasant. And so at this point, the Hebrew author begins to draw some conclusions, uh, again, based on what he has said. And so uh, because of this need of discipline, the goal is to think everyone is to be strengthened. And so we are to lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And we think about what he's talking about there. I'm talking about, you know, in the, in the metaphor, uh, source is 
the human body in various parts. Uh, when do bodies begin to fail? Well, yes, as, as we get older, uh, things start to decay, but also, and especially when we use them less. Uh, very easy if you become more sedentary that you lose muscle tone and it's not easy to do as many things. Certainly also seen in terms of the corruption of other things. Uh, if you want to have car problems uh, beyond your imagination, just let it sit for a couple of years without actually running it. it. There's certainly a truth to the statement, if you don't use it, you lose it. And that's why if somebody breaks a bone or if you have a sprain, a really bad sprain, or people have strokes and things of that nature, what's the thing that they need to go through once they're done? It's called rehab, physical rehabilitation. Why? So that uh, everything will heal properly and will work properly. And a significant part of the healing process is actually using that part so that it gets back into proper joint. And so the spiritual target here is, is, is evident. We're not going to be able to be healed and function properly spiritually if, uh, if we're not willing to work. If we're not willing to practice the disciplines of the faith, uh, we're not going to be able to get benevolence in the proper place. If we're not going to be benevolent, we're not going to be able to get uh, prayer habits or evangelism or uh, peaceability or controlling of temper if we're not actually striving to do those things. Uh, inactivity is not going to lead to salvation. Uh, we need to be exercising constantly in a spiritual sense if we're going to be able to do that. That's part of what strengthening means. We may not like it, but again, the Hebrew author didn't promise this is going to be pleasant. In fact, he promised quite the contrary. And for our purposes uh, in this conversation, we're going to end in verse 14. Fortunately, kind of in the middle of the context, we're kind of splitting the chapter in half here. And he continues, uh, Strive for peace with everyone. And the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so, now the message in Romans 12, 18, that we are to be at peace with all men as much as it depends on us. Again, we're not to look for fights, verbal or physical. We need to, in all things, work for peace. And again, the model of peace is Jesus and the suffering he endured. That How did he uh, make peace? Well, he killed the hostility by absorbing uh, the hostility and absorbing the suffering and the shame. And it was that way able to make one body out of Jews and Gentiles. And that's the way it tends to be. To ha get true peace, somebody's got to absorb the shame and the hostility. And it's not fun to do that, but that's how peace can be established. And we need to be holy people, as Peter incurred as well in 1 Peter 1, 14-16, to be holy as God is holy. And if and God is holy... We, why would we imagine he would be able to be in his presence and to see him if we are not holy as he is? And so we need to tr seek to live without sin and to practice righteousness. And that's what we need to do if we want to see the Lord. There's a lot of great stuff here in the first 14 verses of Hebrews chapter 12. that We need to lay aside distractions and competition and to run the race of the Lord. We need to look to Jesus the origin and completion of our faith. He ran that same race. He suffered for the joy that would come as its fruit. We haven't yet resisted to the point of bloodshed in our fight against sin. And we must not forget that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And we must yield to the discipline that he gives for our own good and election. And we need to work diligently so we can be deemed righteous, to be at peace with men, that we may be fully whole and operational. And so we all do well to strive for that peace and holiness without which uh, we will not see the Lord. And so... 
We're so glad that you've joined us again, and we, if you would like to continue the conversation or to consider other discussions, other passages, or other biblical themes, like to uh, maybe join us at a Bible study or learn more about us at Adventist Church of Christ, we encourage you to check us out online. We're AdventistChurchOfChrist.org. We're also available on social media. Uh, if you'd like to contact me personally, if you have prayer requests or any way I can be of encouragement or strength to you, uh, please let me know at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.